Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you through the word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we read this section and, and study it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 47. Are we ready? I am. Yeah. All right. 26 verse 7. 47. Yep. And this is Jesus. He just got done praying, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, okay, get, wake up. At, you know, things are going to happen. And, and in verse 47, And while he yet spoke, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with them a great multitude with swords and staves and from the chief priest and the elders of the people, now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore are you come? And they came and laid hands on him and took him. And behold, one of them which, which was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then Jesus said unto him, Put away your sword. For they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Think you that I cannot now pray to my father and that he shall pres presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then sh shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it sh must be? In the same hour said Jesus to the multitude, Are you come out against me as a thief with swords and staves for, for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid not hold on me, but all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then they, all the disciples forsook him and fled. And fled. And I just want to read for the sake of uh, continuity. I want to go into uh, Luke real quick and read Luke's account of this same event. It's Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. 22, you say? Luke 22. 47 through 53. And while he spoke, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and said, and, and drew near unto Jesus and kissed him. And Jesus said, Judas betrays you, the Son of Man, with a kiss. And when they that were with him saw what, what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer you thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come with him, But be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hand against me. But this is the hour and the power of darkness. And then we're going to look at John chapter 18, verses 3 through 20. And I just want to give you the whole scope of this event. John 18, 3 through 12. Judas then, having received a band of men and officials from the high priest and Pharisees, come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come, said and said, come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek you? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. When he, then he asked them again, Whom seek you? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let they, these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of them which you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high servant's priest servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus to Peter, Put away your sword into your sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain of the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Ananias first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. So we see, I wanted to get this because each one of these accounts give us a little more information about this event that we're looking at. So we're going to start with, with this. So remember, Judas had agreed to, to sell Jesus. And, his, and it says that Judas came, and with him was a great multitude with swords and staves from the high priest and the elders of the people. And this great multitude doesn't tell us exactly how big this was, but a multitude in and of itself puts it into the, the around the 100 mark. And it says a great multitude. So we're looking at a lot of people coming to arrest Jesus. But you know, I don't think they were coming that they expected trouble arresting Jesus. I think they wanted so many people that when Jesus was stuck in the middle of the, the group of people arresting him, nobody would know that it was Jesus in the center of the crowd. So because why didn't they, if remember, we talked about this several weeks ago, why didn't they arrest him in the, when he was out in the, in the marketplace? They were afraid of the crowds. So I really believe this multitude wasn't because they thought Jesus was going to fight them and put up a fight, but that if you put him in the center of a huge group of people around him, he's hidden. He's out of sight of the people. And I could be wrong on that, but I just think that this is what they did. They wanted enough people that nobody would know that it was Jesus in the center of this, of this crowd. And it says they came with him with swords and staves. Now they came, they came ready battle. In one sense, they were probably hoping he would fight <laughs> so, they could, so they could beat him to death right there in the, in the garden rather than even have to go to, the, go, to, go to this thing. But they came as if they were going to arrest the most violent criminal out there. But I think in many ways, they, they went out there to, with the show of force, trying to hide Jesus when they arrest him. And they're kind of hoping that maybe he'll, he'll fight. And Jesus says to, to him that betrayed him with the sign saying, or he said, whomsoever I shall kiss, that is he, hold him fast. And I kind of find this a very strange thought. You know, these people knew who Jesus was. They, they were battling with him, arguing with him, and yet they wanted a sign on who they were supposed to arrest. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, Jesus apparently didn't stand out in the crowd in many ways if he wasn't speaking. It, it seems like, you know, you know, you're going to arrest the guy with the, the long hair and, and taller than everybody. You know, they didn't have some kind of description of that. It was like, make sure you get the right person. Wasn't it dark too, so they wanted to make sure? Well, yeah, it was in the middle of the night. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing significant about Jesus' appearance that would draw people to him. And, and in a world of people low, much less than five, you know, six foot, a six foot tall person, would stand out and be looked at. That's why they chose Saul to be king, because he was head and shoulders above everybody else in height. He looked like the king. He looked, he looked the part. And pretty much even in our day, if somebody stands up above the crowd, people pay attention to them. 
whether they deserve it or not is another story, but people pay attention to them. And I don't believe Jesus was that way because the scriptures tell us there was nothing physical to draw, draw to him. And my idea here is that maybe these guys sent to arrest him didn't really know who he was, which is possible. He had his followers. The scribes and Pharisees knew who he was because he was a threat. They perceived him as a threat to their authority and power. But the soldiers they sent out may not have known who he was. So he says, I'm going to give him a kiss. And then he says in verse 49, where forthwith he came to Jesus and he said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And this is kind of an interesting statement. He goes, Hail, Master, or Rabbi, Teacher. He gives him the title of respect so that he could be arrested. And Jesus said to him, Friend, wherefore are you come? And it says, And they took him. And in, we read in the other one, he goes, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? And you've got to think about this. A kiss, even, even in that place, you know, just like it's done in the Middle East and in France today, it was just a quick, quick touch of the cheeks. But it's still something that was an intimate friendship. You don't just walk up to everybody and greet them that way. It's a friend or, or somebody, you know, or a very official act. But it, you don't just walk up and do that to anybody. So this is an intimate type of greeting to sell Jesus to the mob. It was done partially to fulfill the scriptures because in, in a, uh, Psalm 41.9, it says that he would be betrayed by his friend. You know, so we see this over and over. All of this activity in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, yes, the Garden of Gethsemane <laughs> is to fulfill the scriptures. And it's quite an uh, integral part. Jesus praying with his disciples. Well, Jesus praying, the disciples sleeping. Uh, <laughs> they were supposed to be praying. And then all of a sudden, there's a huge crowd in the garden, in which a garden would be an enclosed, walled area, which makes it a very private place for them to arrest him. There's not a whole lot of witnesses other than his disciples and the people coming to arrest him. He's going to be taken away. And, he's, and Judas does it with a kiss. And then it says, you know, in our verse, says 51, And behold, one of them stretched forth his hand with a sword and, and struck the servant of the high priest's ear and, and cut it off. I do not believe that Peter's goal was to just chop his ear off. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a soldier. <laughs> Got a little excited. I think he was aiming to take the guy's head off, not just his just, just his ear, which I think was a great blessing, because if he had taken the servant's head off, there would have been a big, that would have been it. That would have been just like in our day, if somebody draws a weapon, and, you know, when they're surrounded, they're dead. You know, just the excitement, the everything, the chaos that's going on. This one doesn't say Peter, but, you know, we read that in two other verses, uh, chapters, that it's Peter that draws this sword to fight. And this goes back to what we said. Peter, before they even left the Last Supper, was said, you know, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'll die for you. All these others, all these other losers might, uh, might run from you, but I'm going to die. I will die for you. But he starts out, he's fully ready to die for Jesus. Oh, he totally believed that he was strong enough to die for Jesus. And you know, and even when we studied it back and then, I've said, we oftentimes will say we'll do something for God, but when it comes time, we find out that we don't have the strength we thought we had. And Peter's going to find out ultimately. And you've got to think, he's ready to fight 
a multitude of people, you know, 100, 200, whatever multitude is, he's ready to fight. And he meant what he said. He was ready to die for Jesus, but Jesus, knowing that he had to die alone, knew that Peter would not have that strength to do so and that he would deny him. And then he says, put your sword away. This is not the time to do it. And his specific thing says, you know, for they that take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Violence does not win the day in, mo in, in most cases at all. And he says, put it away. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. And this is why I keep saying, you know, our most important thing for us as Christians is to let God be our defense. Now, for a nation, it's time for, it's time for a nation sometimes to have to defend the nation. And that will always bring retaliation back, and it's whoever's stronger will win, win the battle. But there are times for defense. This was not one of those times. And Jesus said, put your sword away. Put the sword away. And then, as we were told in John, he picks up Malchus's ear, puts it back on his head, and heals him, which stops all the other violence. But you know, this is very much true for us. If we live by the world's way of doing things, the world's way of doing things will harm us. And this is why Christians have to be this counter revolutionaries, you know, where we come up and we love one another, we're kind to one another, we say gentle things to one another and to the world, which then makes them wonder why we're so different and why we're so weird. Because that's how they look at us. We're strange because we're not sitting there trying to get the best of people if we're following God. And we need to live in that standard that sets us above the world. And the world says, you know, well, I don't still understand you Christians. You get hurt and you're not seeking revenge. You get attacked and you're not attacking back. And people look at that and they say, there's something different. I want what you have. Now, they may not say it directly. They may not even say it to you. But again, we look at, if you ever have read anything in Fox's Book of Martyrs, It'll say, so-and-so died, and then right after it almost inevitably says, and a great revival happened. You know, people saw how Christians died, and they go, they have something. They have something that they've decided is worth dying for. And this is something that's important for us to understand. Do we have something in our life that is worth dying for if we have to? Or are we willing to sell it cheap? And in our world in America, a lot of Christians are willing to sell Christianity cheap. You know, I want to keep my job, so I'm not saying anything about what I believe. You know, uh, I, want to, I, I want to be liked in the neighborhood, so I will never take a stand on anything to do with sin. And people look at that and say, well, you don't have anything I want. Now, they may make fun of you. They may make your life miserable for taking a stand. But as you honor Christ in that stand, they'll look at you and say, there's something different. Martin Luther King did this whole thing with passive resistance. And he had a lot of people arguing with him that it wasn't going to work. And he's going, we're just going to be passive. We're, we'll do sit-ins. We're going to be, you know, he's followed Jesus' example, not by the sword. And in, in, in most of it, won. Yeah, and they came out of his group and were fighting with him at, all that time, trying to get him to change his mind. But uh, he took Jesus' example of just saying, resist and do it peacefully. Love people. Pray for them. You know, Martin Luther King was very big on prayer and, and everything, too. He knew that the greatest power of their 
their, their mark was the prayer side of it. And he took it from Jesus. And then verse 53, Think you that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Now this is kind of an interesting statement. First off, the Romans had 10 legions. <laughs> okay, So he's basically saying, uh, hey, I can just cast the Father, and he can give me more angels than the, than the Romans have entire, in their entire army, and he'd send them right here. A legion during that period of time was approximately 6,000 men. Wow. Okay. So Jesus is saying, if I just want to ask the Father, he'd give me 72,000 angels to deliver me. And I can picture the angels in heaven like just, okay, Father, when are you going to send us? Uh, uh, we're not supposed to see him getting hurt and you're in uh, these, you know, Mortal uh, things on this earth are going to destroy him. You know, go, let us go get him. And you think about this. In 2 Kings 19.35, it says that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Okay. And Jesus is saying, uh, the, the father, if I asked for him, would send me 70, more than 72,000 men, uh, angels. And if you use the same ratio on that, that means that they could kill 13,320,000,000 people. Okay. Uh, basically, if, if God is Jesus saying, if I wanted to, I could destroy the whole world. And God would send me, the Father would send me enough, and we could destroy everything and be done with it. And so he's making a great point to Peter and the rest of the disciples and to the, to the mob because it's basically the same thing he says to Pilate later when Pilate says, aren't you going to say anything to me? Don't you know I have the power to, to release or condemn you? And he goes, you'd have no power unless it was given to you. Jesus chose what he's going to go through. At any point, he could have just said, okay, Father, <laughs> let's end this. I'm just coming home. You get rid of all these people. And he's telling the disciples this was all the plan this is the plan that I came for to die. Even though you haven't been listening to me and paying attention to me for the last year that I've been telling you I'm going to die. But he goes, this is the plan. And we talked two weeks ago about Gethsemane, how I feel that the father answered his prayer and the cup that he was praying for was to go to the cross, not to avoid the cross. All right. Uh, but he's saying, this is the plan. I'm going to the cross and if I really wanted to, the Father would rescue me. Yeah. He goes, if I wanted to be, I could be the Messiah. I could be the king of this world right now because I'm God. And the Father would send me plenty of, plenty of army to fight. So, disciples, I don't need you to fight. I've got, I've got a whole army at my call. Yes. You know, we look at this and say, how many times do we fear this world because we don't realize the power that God has to protect us. And we need to really understand that God will protect us until it's time for us to die for, for, for him. And I've shared, I've shared with you, my, my wife had an experience where the tie rod went out on her car and she made three turns and she used to laugh. She goes, I'll know my angel when I get to heaven because he'll be the one covered with all the, all the, all the road grime, you know, because we all turned. And if you know, you know, people who know about cars could know, you don't make any turns without a tie rod. 
And when I jacked the car up, the tire just wobbled. And I'm going, well, I guess that car's not being driven anywhere. And, uh, but you know, Jesus has the power to protect us. And even if we're going to face death, he has the power to protect us in that death. Stephen, when he's being stoned because of his testimony for God, looks up into heaven and says, I see Jesus standing at the throne of, at the right hand of God. And you know what? I believe that he didn't feel a single stone that hit him thereafter. His eyes were focused on Jesus and his spirit was taken away and they were just stoned in an empty shell. This is so important for us to understand. One of the stories in Martyrs, uh, Fox's book, Martyrs, that I really love is about a father and son who, go, who are going to get ready to be burned at the stake. And the f- son has got the greater faith and he goes out and as he's being burned, he raises his hand and starts singing praises to God as he's being burnt. You know, that is God doing a work in somebody's life. And just the boldness that people have gone to death for Jesus Christ. And because God gives them the strength to go through this all. And you know, this is something we want to be able to understand. I would love to say, I know for a fact that if I had to face, face death, I would do it. And I'm pretty sure I would, but you know, you won't know until you are standing in that place. And even then, it'll only be the God's grace that allows you to go through it. Peter, at this point, is ready to die for him. He's, very, he's doing it in his own strength. But at that point, he's ready to die for Jesus. Because he knows as soon as he pulls that sword that you know, against the multitude, unless a miracle happens, and he fully believes a miracle could happen, but he's ready to say, I'm going to protect him with my life. And... Jesus says, you know, put it away. It's not that time. And that's just it. He, you know, he says, I'm Jesus, the power and presence of God. Because if you've ever been in a huge move of God and you really feel his presence, it can be very overwhelming and heavy upon people. Uh, this is where the Pentecostals get this idea of being slain in the spirit when the spirit of God so overwhelms them that they just fall flat on their back or whatever. And some of it's false, some of it's true, but, but it is just an overwhelming presence of God. And sometimes when you're in worship with singing and just in worship with God, you can get overwhelmed by the presence of God. And even in prayer or even in a Bible study, you know, you know, the Spirit is moving, it can be overwhelming, especially if you're not used to His presence. And in, this is the thing. They weren't, the people who fell backwards weren't used to the presence of God. And all of a sudden, they're in the mighty presence of God. And I think just a bit of his glory shown through to say, okay, who are you looking for? You know, we're looking for Jesus. I am he. <laughs> they still didn't understand. Well, they didn't understand. They were they blinded. But how often do we not understand what God's saying and doing in our life? Because we're not looking. And we're not looking for God so often. We're not ready to hear his word. We think we can do it ourselves. We think we can understand the, the almighty you know, if God just gave us the smallest inkling of what he was like or, or doing, we couldn't handle it because of who we are. All we can do is learn more and more about him and be more ready to receive him. But we think about when Moses came down off the mountain with 40 days with God, he says his face shone. He reflected the very presence and the light of God, and he had to put a veil on his face because people were basically afraid of him. That's how much he was shining. He was, his own, he was his own candle. <laughs> and the people were going, whoa, you know, we don't want, 
Whatever it is you've got, we don't want. It's kind of interesting, like when all the beating was going on, so nothing, nothing, um, no power came out of it. Because he had to be, he had to be beaten in it. Because that was again part of the saying: if I asked, I would be delivered. You know, he didn't even need to ask for the angels; he could have delivered them himself. Yeah, he could have delivered himself with all kinds of power. They could have spoken; they could have been, they would have been killed or at least, you know, knocked out completely. But his deity was veiled during this period of time so that he would be executed by man. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to believe that he did this. But he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and he knew what he was gone to do was to die on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins. And to have the power to be able to just speak a word uh, he had the power to speak a word and kill everybody that was around him. Even very pickily picking just the people that were coming to arrest him. Standing in Caiaphas's palace, he could have just said a word, spoken a word and everybody would have been dead. When he's being beaten by the soldiers, he'd just speak a word and they would have been dead. He could have spoke a word and the, and the flagellums could have disappeared. You know, he had all kinds of power that he could have done. And how many times did he just disappear in the crowd? And just pass through a crowd, you know. It's, and but he had this power. But he says in verse fifty-six, but all this was done so that the scriptures and the prophets would be fulfilled. He understood what was going on. He knew what was going on, and was ready, fully ready to accept it. He'd been telling the disciples for more than a year, "I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect in three days." They just never understood it. It was so contrary to anything that they thought that they would, would not understand it. It's like you don't grasp it. They didn't grasp it. They, it was beyond what they were willing to accept. But again, we do the same thing so often when God gives us a message and sometimes we get it and it's like, wow, wow God, what a wonderful message. And other times we're so dull that we don't even get it until later on we go, oh, oh yeah, I did read that verse before and it, it should have meant something to me. <laughs> well, we choose to ignore it. A quote from Tozer that says, most Christians do not hear the word of God because they've already decided not to obey it, him. We don't hear him because we don't want to hear him, basically. I've already decided if he tells me to go, I'm not going. So he doesn't tell me. And I'm not going to listen even if he did tell me because I'll be just like the disciples who were told for a year, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect, I'm going to resurrect. And they're going, what are you talking about? We don't understand. And he kept repeating it over and over and over again, and their answer was basically, doesn't compute. Do you want to understand, or they just, they just didn't really understand? They really did not understand because he was the Messiah, and in their mind, the Messiah had come to start his kingdom and rule the world. So whenever he said something that does not match their preconceived idea of who he is, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other because it's like it hits this and says, Okay, doesn't doesn't make any sense. Yeah, how can he do this? How can he raise people from the dead? He's the Messiah. And their understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to go to the to the to the palace. He was going to kick out the Romans. He was going to create bring his own army and he was going to rule the world from Jerusalem, which he will do at his second coming. And again, we can do this so simple we can get so wrapped up in what we believe and ignore even what the scripture says. 
which is why I say we've got to be very careful when we're reading the scriptures to not take our preconceived ideas into what it says and ignore what it says. They just didn't understand properly. They, they threw out Isaiah 53 that talked about him taking a beating and stripes and dying uh, because it did not compute with their idea of what the Messiah was. They knew it was a Messianic prophecy, but it didn't match what they believed about the Messiah, so they would, ignored it. And we can do this all the time in our life. We can ignore anything that goes against our preconceived ideas of what is going to happen or what should happen. Each denomination has its preconceived ideas about what, what could or should happen. And we've got to be careful not even to let a denomination rule our thought processes on this. We want to get into God's word and say, God, what do you say? And go forward from that. We see a lot of it in today's, you know, I, I follow this pastor, I follow this pastor, I follow this pastor. This pastor is the greatest pastor that you could ever go. Don't, don't listen to anybody else. And we've got to be careful of that. And there are some good pastors out there that are well worth listening to, but we want to follow God, not a pastor, not a denomination, not a church. And we see all of this going on that Jesus says, they've come to arrest me and, I, and, the, prof, and the scripture must be fulfilled. And then it says, and they, all the disciples forsook him and fled. In Luke or John, I don't remember which one, but Jesus said, you've come for me, let these leave. And I believe he had to ask, say, let them leave because it's a multitude in a small garden, enclosed garden, and they would have had the, gate, the, the doors and the gates guarded. So nobody was going to leave, and they probably were under the charge of arrest everybody with them. And they let him go. They let the disciples go. Uh, this one doesn't indicate that they were, you know, let go, but the other one says Jesus asked them, let them go, because all he wanted was himself. He was the sacrifice. And besides that, he needed the disciples to be the witnesses <laughs> after he was resurrected. So it was let these, let these go, and, and they were let go. And this is a very powerful thing. And then in verse 57, let's go on, verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with his servants to see the, to see the end. Now the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last two witnesses and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it up in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, answer you nothing? What is this that these witnesses against you? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, you have said, you have said nonetheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think you? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. And they did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, you Christ. Who is it that smote you? All right, so they lead him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
And one thing we want to put in place is this is the middle of the night that this is happening. By Jewish law, you did not have a trial in the middle of the night. All right? It is not what you did. You did not take somebody for a crime in the middle of the night. You would hold them until the morning when you could assemble the entire court. So this is basically going to be a, we would call it today, a kangaroo court. They handpicked the people that were going to be in the, in the judge's box. They did not have the entire court in front of him. And it says that they led him away. It's the middle of the night. It's against the rules. Then besides this, you did not have your, and by Jewish laws, you did not hold the court session and convict the person on the same day, especially of a capital offense. The, they would have to have 24 hours to think about their decision and meet the next day. So everything about Jesus' conviction is wrong by Jewish laws of that day. And even by our laws, you know, and most, most civilized laws would never do what, what they're getting ready to do. And they take him to Caiaphas, and then it says, but Peter followed afar off and sat with the servants. And you see what it was in the end of verse 58. He came there to see the end. Again, he's still being pretty brave at this point. He is following Jesus where he can be recognized. But he's going there because he really expects this to be the end. He's forgotten that Jesus says he's going to resurrect, you know, rise again. He's waiting to see what's going to happen to Jesus. And he expects death, which is what's going to happen. But he's going there with the wrong attitude. He's looking there in a very disappointed area that I'm going to go see him die. And at that point, if he, once he dies, he expects, and the rest of the disciples expect, that they are next. They spent four years following Jesus. Lots of people will be able to witness that they were with Jesus all the time. They're not like the 500 others that were mostly with him. These 12 or 11 now, because Judas isn't there, are the ones that are with him all the time. And they fully expect when he dies that they're going to go arrest the rest of the gang. You know, all the other you know, rebels will be arrested. And that's usually what happens. A leader gets struck down and, they, you know, and the rest of the people are arrested or jailed or executed very quickly thereafter. So even at this point, Peter is being pretty brave. He's inside another walled area with the servants. Okay? And uh, in verse 59, And the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. Now, specifically, they had to be false witnesses because there's no charges. But we look at this in Deuteronomy 35.30. It says on a capital offense that there has to be more than one witness in agreement. All right? And in Deuteronomy 17.6, it says there must be two or more witnesses that agree to put somebody to death. So they're trying to find any two people that will say the same thing. And they can't find anybody that's even going to say the same thing. And this is pretty sad when, you're, when you've been trying to arrest somebody for a long period of time, you would think they would have the witnesses already prepped and ready to say the right, right words. 
But in many cases, Jesus has accelerated their, their plan. Because remember, we said a couple, probably a month ago now, they did not want to arrest him during the feast. Because remember, we said there's millions of visitors in Jerusalem during the Passover. Because every male had to go to Jerusalem three times a year, and the Passover was one of those times. And it says, Josephus tells us that Jerusalem would swell from 20 or 30,000 people to over a million people during the Passover. That's a lot of people in a small area. And they did not want Jesus arrested at that point because they were too afraid of the people. Here's a, you know, beyond the 10,000, we might be able to make some kind of control. We've got everybody from all over the nation who's heard about this man. We might have real trouble. And Jesus ends up being arrested during the feast which is what he had to because he's the Passover lamb. But he's accelerated this. And if you think about this, all through the other accounts, he's going, who are you seeking? I'm he. You know? he, he you've done something, you know, I'm the one, you, I'm the one you want. And he's going to keep this, he's almost aggressive with them. Do what you're supposed to do because I am going to push you to what it is because I am to die for the, as a Passover lamb. And he, he's, he's in control. You know, the, the chief priest, all these other guys, even Pilate, are not in control at all of this, this procedures. And we're going to see that even in this one where he says, where the high priest you know, is trying to get him to answer. Jesus is in, is in control. And it says, they couldn't find anybody that comes, you know, come in, but at last they find two people, and they say something that is kind of almost the truth. It says, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, Jesus said something similar to that, but that is not what he said. And we're going to look at John chapter 2, verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said, what sign will you show us, seeing that you have done these things already? And Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise, raise it up. Then said the Jews, 46 years it took the, to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he, but he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, the disciples remembered what he said, and they believed according to the scriptures. So Jesus told them, if you destroy this temple, and he was standing in the temple at the moment, so they took it to be the, the, the temple of God. He's talking about the body. But now all of a sudden they're going, okay, you know, we've got something. He said he was going to destroy the temple. And that was where, that's the charges that he's going to stand with at first. But even in that, apparently, these, these witnesses didn't agree even in that statement. And, you know, this is something that is kind of interesting. They could not get the witnesses together to, to, make, an, to make an argument to put him to death. And Jesus held his peace. Even if all this attacking, he is not opening his mouth to be the fulfillment of the scriptures that says that he was the lamb, he was dumb as a lamb led to slaughter. He was not going to speak until in verse 63, the high priest answered and said to them, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the son of God. At this point, he's saying, basically, in the name of the father, tell us 
if you are Christ. But the high priest adjures him to speak. Now, another thing about the courts in Israel were that just like we say that the person who's on trial cannot be compelled to speak at the trial. They can't be made to speak again, you know, for themselves or against themselves. In the Jewish court of law, they were not supposed to do that either. You were not supposed to take the person to speak words that might condemn themselves. And yet the high priest is commanding him basically by God to speak. And in this case, Jesus does recognize the high priest's authority before God. Now, Caiaphas wasn't a very righteous man, but he was the high priest. And because the high priest did it, Jesus answered him and says in 64, you have said, nevertheless I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And basically he said, you have said, yes, you, are, you spoke the truth, is what he said. And he says, but after this, you're going to see me sitting at power and coming, coming in authority. And at that, the high priest rents his garment and says, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, now we have heard this blasphemy. Blasphemy, speaking against God, speaking an untruth. Now, the only problem is, for Jesus, it wasn't blasphemy. <laughs> he spoke the truth, and he's going to be put to death because he speaks the truth. And yet, they would not accept it because they have never accepted who he is. As, as you were asking earlier, you know, uh, they don't recognize who he is. They don't accept who he is. So when he speaks the truth, they charge him with blasphemy. When he said many chapters ago, talking to the people, he goes, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to, to stone him because as far as they were concerned, he did just said, I am God. That's what he said right here, I am God. He goes, you have said it, I'm God. And by the way, you're going to see me in power. You, you're going to see me in the power. The high priest does what he, again, something else he's not supposed to do. He's not supposed to tear the high priest garments. <laughs> he tears the high priest garments and declares that he's blasphemous and basically saying, okay, all you people have heard him. We now have lots of witnesses that have heard him say that he is Christ. And says, what do you think? And they answered him, he is guilty of death. And again, the sentence was not supposed to happen in the same session as the trial. They were supposed to have a night in between to think about the severity of what they were getting ready to do. Of course, they didn't punish all these false witnesses. And who remembers what the penalty for perjury was in Israel? Yeah. Not necessarily, in this case, yes, it would have been death. It was, a, the sentence was equal to whatever you were trying to convict the person of. So in this case, death. But uh, if it's something lighter, it would have been, you know, a lighter sentence. So we have here, he's guilty. And then they did something really wonderful in the middle of court. They says, and then they spit in his face and buffeted him and others smote him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is he that smote you? Now, in this particular version, it doesn't say why this is such a big, big problem. But in, 
in one of the other versions, and I don't remember off the top of my head, they said they put a bag over his head and smote him. And then said, tell us who's hitting you. And that was make the, the strike even worse because you never, you didn't get a chance to brace for it because you didn't know it was coming. They are, have him in court and the Jewish guards are having a, a field day with him to punish him. This is the animosity that's going on. This is the, the fevered pitch that Satan has really pushed people into as Jesus is under trial. And again, Satan is trying to kill him and, you know, hurt him enough so that he doesn't go to the cross. Satan fully understands that that cross is his destination and knows that he doesn't want him there. Because if he dies the way he's supposed to die, he's the sacrifice for the world. Satan has tried to kill him in, tried to kill him in Gethsemane. He's trying to kill him here. When we get to Pilate scourging him, he's trying to kill him uh, through the scourging. And God protects him to take him to the cross in each of these incidents where he's trying to be killed beforehand. And again, that's what we talked about two weeks ago. Father, if I'm to die here, I'm going to take it, but I'm supposed to go to the cross. And he also may have pictured these other things coming his way, that all these other events that are designed to take his life. And he's going to go forward and stand at the cross to die for us. And we're going to end there before we get to Peter denying Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we thank you for all the pain and suffering you took so that we could spend eternity with you. Lord, we pray for anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, that they will recognize that they're a sinner and, that, and accept your sacrifice and your gift. And Lord, we ask you to go with us as we go about our business until Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.